0: Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Dei Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with Our Body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, please do open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We have the opportunity again this morning of returning to the study of this gospel. For those of you who are a bit newer with us, we've been working through the gospel of Luke for uh, officially a little over three years at this point, and we come to the ninth chapter. And we will be taking a look at a section that begins a very important shift in the gospel. Uh, We began to look at it just briefly last week. Um, I gave just a very basic introduction for you. Uh, I wanted to kind of set the scene a little bit. Uh, My goal again was to lay down some foundational interpretational work for us, uh, especially given the nature of some of the passages that we're going to be encountering, Lord willing, over the coming weeks. Uh, But this morning we'll be in verses 1 through 9 in particular. And if you remember, this is where Jesus now calls his disciples to their very first task and their very first mission. And so this is a passage in which he wants to teach these men some very important lessons regarding the nature of true ministry and specifically what it means to accomplish ministry in the power but also dependency of Jesus Christ. And so before we set our minds to these words, let me just read them for you. Again, this is Luke chapter 9, and we will be in verses 1 through 9. Here's what Luke records under the inspiration of the Spirit. He said, and he, Jesus, called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed, because it was said by some that John had arisen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded. So who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. Uh, As we saw last time and learned, this is a very important transition now in the narrative of Luke. Um, Jesus now has only about 18 months left until he faces the cross And so he now begins this next phase of training these men to take up the baton and pass on this mission of Jesus. And so in chapter 9, we now see these 12 disciples begin to move off the sidelines, so to speak, and actually move onto the field. And so for about a year and a half up to this point, Jesus has been doing the work of ministering Galilee, but he's been doing it alone. These men have been with him for... Some of that time, they've been watching him, they've been learning from him, and so now they need to make that important transition of merely observing and asking questions to now doing, and so that is exactly what Jesus has them do. And so what we're going to see is that this passage, again, is really all about teaching these disciples some very important lessons, in fact, that is the very purpose of this mission that he sends them on in verses one through nine, he is now preparing them for a lifetime of faithful ministry for the decades to come. And so from the very beginning, he needs to instill in them some very critical convictions, certain essential convictions that must be present if they're to be useful to their master. And so we really only have two main points this morning. This is just a simple passage, nothing majorly complex or deep here for you this morning. Again, it's just a transition passage, but it is a helpful reminder, I think in many ways. And so these are the two points that Jesus wants these disciples to understand. And so for those of you who like notes or structure, in verses one through two, we're going to see that Jesus provides every spiritual resource for faithful ministry. He provides every spiritual resource for faithful ministry. And then in verses three through five, we're going to see that he provides every physical Resource for faithful ministry. And so, again, those are the two main points. And then we'll finish it out with a little bit of conclusion by drawing some points from verses six through nine. And so, let's take a look at the first point here in verses one through two. And we saw some of this last time, but notice again what Luke records. He states, And he called the twelve together and he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Now, I labored to show you last time how the specifics here that we see in this passage are something that are unique to the 12 alone, these 12 men. And so notice he gives them this unique power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Now, again, many will take this passage and say that this should somehow be normative for the church or that many should be experiencing this in their own life if they profess Christ and Because after all, since this was the first time that Jesus commissions his disciples and it's the first time that they're given any responsibility, then in some way, therefore, we are to view this as somehow a model paradigm for all future disciples. But I tried to make the case that this should be read primarily descriptively and not prescriptively. That is to say that this is not prescribing what we should therefore go and do. Rather, this is describing a historical record. In fact, remember, Jesus at this point had many other disciples, and we'll see that specifically in the beginning of chapter 10. He sends the 70 out two by two, but here he commissions the 12 alone, and so in light of that, these are 12 very unique men. In fact, these 12 would become his apostles, verse 6, and so they are set apart. They have been sovereignly called among all these other disciples, but for a very specific purpose. And so Jesus here begins by focusing on the 12 alone, because not only would they become the new spiritual heads of Israel, as we saw in chapter 22 and verse 30, but they would also be the foundation of the church, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, again, all of which we looked at last time. And so the specifics of this passage, like the power to heal and the power to cast out demons, understand that that is unique to the 12 alone. That is the point, and that is what I tried to argue for last time. But the underlying principles here that we see are what are still in effect for us today, which, again, as we're going to see, is that God is always faithful to provide every resource that you may need for faithful ministry and faithfulness to his call, and that, again, will be the entire point of this passage. And By the way, just on the question of prescriptive versus descriptive, and which principles apply and which are unique to a particular passage. All you have to do to figure that out is just see what principles seem to be repeated throughout the New Testament. And so in the case of this passage, never will you find a command or an overt exhortation anywhere in the New Testament to cast out demons. Never will you find an overt passage that commands you to go and heal the sick because you've been granted some kind of special power. But over and over again, you will be given the promise that Christ will provide for you everything that you may need for your calling, both spiritually and physically. And so that becomes then, therefore, the underlying principles. Doesn't matter, frankly, if it's something involving formal ministry, whether it's pastoring or teaching or counseling, or if it's simply being a faithful husband or wife. So You might not be given authority over the demons, but you have been given the stuff to be a faithful representative of Christ. You've been given the stuff to be a faithful worker, a faithful student, a faithful witness to the unbelievers around you as you're engaged in that task of making disciples. In fact, that is what we will see here this morning. And so notice, first of all, verse 1. Luke says that these disciples, notice, were given, they were given power and authority. And... It's not just any power or any authority, but notice it is a power and authority over demons and to heal diseases. That is unique. That is a unique set of resources to accomplish a very unique task. Notice as well that it is Jesus who gives them this power. That is very important. So they're not called to look for it. They're not called to pray for it. They're not called to go to school to learn how to tap into it or to harness it. Rather, Jesus again says, you just now have power. Frankly, they did nothing to earn it. They're wasn't something unique in them that they should somehow receive it. Rather, this was a sovereign gifting doled out to these sovereignly appointed men. In fact, that is the very idea of the term there of called. He called them together. And again, some very ordinary men. There was nothing in them that they should receive this, nothing in them that Jesus saw for why he chose them. And so what is the lesson? What is the principle? Well, that whatever Jesus calls you to do, he will also give you the spiritual resources to accomplish it. And that, again, is the principle we see happening over and over throughout the New Testament. In fact, not only do we see it here where Jesus gives his first task to the 12, but we see him do it again in the beginning of chapter 10 where he gives that unique commission to the 70. And so if you let your eyes wander over there, you'll see in verse 19 of chapter 10 that he gives the 70 power and authority to accomplish a very particular task given to them. And so again, what is the point? Well, that he always provides the resources. He always gives whatever is necessary for faithfulness in terms of accomplishing what he has commanded you. And so what I want to draw out for our purposes with this is that we see this idea again in chapter 24 in what is commonly referred to as the Great Commission. And this is Luke's version of the Great Commission. In fact, turn there with me if you can. Chapter 24 of Luke. This is that very famous commission in which the disciples are commanded to go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And the reason that it's so important, as you know, is because that is a commission that has been given to us as well. And because implied in the idea of disciple is that you are now making disciples. And so that is the mission handed down to every disciple. Now, there are some who, because of the prescriptive or descriptive issue, see that commission applying only to the 12 alone. But again, built into the idea of What it means to be a faithful disciple is that you're one who now takes what you've learned and then you turn around and pour it into others. And so that is a command I would argue that remains in effect for us today. Not to mention that it is something that you see repeated throughout all the epistles as well. And so in that commission, we are given the promise that Christ will give us whatever we need for faithfulness to our calling. And so notice, starting in verse 46 of chapter 24... Jesus says to the 11, Judas is now dead. So he says to the 11, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you. And so you are to stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. And what is that talking about? Well, that is the outpouring of the Spirit that we see happen in Acts chapter 2. And so notice here, though, they will be given power, but power for what purpose? Well, in the context, notice it is not to cast out demons, it is not to heal the sick, it's not to raise the dead. That is something that they will do. And again, uniquely as apostles alone, those are the signs of an apostle, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. But in the context here, what are they given power for specifically? Well, notice verse 47, so that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations. So what is the purpose of the coming of the Spirit? Well, that in their preaching of repentance and their preaching of the forgiveness of sins, there would be an effective power in their preaching. And so he gives them a very important mission, but he does not leave them powerless. Rather, again, he gives them that necessary power or spiritual resource required to accomplish the task that he has commanded. In fact, not only are they given the power to accomplish such things, but they're also given the authority to accomplish such things. So Luke talks about the power Here in chapter 24, but Matthew in his version of the Great Commission talks about the authority. So flip with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, and this is a passage that you know extremely well. In fact, we spent several weeks some years ago working through every aspect of this passage. This is The marching orders given to the church and therefore the mandate that has been placed over every single one of our lives. And so in Matthew chapter 28, you have a record here of Jesus' final words starting in verse 18 and he says there, notice that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So notice the argument. He says, go therefore. So what is the question that you should ask? What is the therefore therefore? Well, the therefore is there for telling you that there is a connection with what he's about to say and what he just said. So the command, again, is to make disciples. That, in fact, is the main verb. That's the main fancy word imperative of this section. That's the main command. And so notice how he motivates the command. What is the reasoning he gives? Why can you have confidence in this task? Well, because notice all authority has been given to him both in heaven and on earth. So how much is all? Getting tired of that question yet? And how much is covered in the phrase here of both heaven and earth? This is a holistic authority. That is the point. And so the point, again, is that Jesus never commands anything without also giving the necessary spiritual ability to be faithful to that task and, I would argue, to be fruitful in the obedience to any command. And so in Luke chapter 9, remember the disciples are given both power and authority there as well for that particular mission and that particular passage, but we see it reiterated again for us in our day when it comes to faithful obedience to the Great Commission. Both Luke and Matthew together testify that you have both power and authority to make disciples. And that is a very comforting truth, I think. It is power and authority, frankly, to obey anything that Jesus requires of you. How many times have you felt utterly powerless, perhaps, to speak forth the gospel? Perhaps there have been times in which you've been discouraged with a particular discipleship relationship or frustrated as you seek to teach and disciple your own children. Perhaps there have been many times in which you've just felt powerless and incapable in the task. Maybe there have been times in which you've felt intimidated as you've prayed about having to interact with a particular employee, a fellow employee or friend as you seek to bring them the gospel. Well, the confidence here, notice, it's not in your ability. It's not in your skills. It's not in your technique to speak. It's not in your ability to act a certain way. It's certainly not bound up with your ability to craft a certain argument or martial evidence, rather the motivation that Jesus gives explicitly when it comes to any form of discipleship, which which begins with the process of evangelism, is that all authority, notice, belongs to him. And so what is the implication? Well, that if you are in Christ and you are now carrying out that commission, then as you are faithful to continue the work that he began, then you are operating from a power and authority that is frankly holistic. And that is a fact. Notice he is not commanding you to find the power or to get the power or to do something to harness more of his power. Rather, you already have it fully. Now, you might feel weak at times, you might feel that it's an exercise of futility, but the beautiful thing about the promise is that your feelings can never nullify a promise of God. Promises of God are never conditioned upon your own discouragement or ability or even your unbelief at times. Now, is that a guarantee that everyone to whom you speak the gospel will somehow be converted? or that as you seek to be faithful to the mission to make disciples, that you will always be effective, you will always bear fruit? Well, no, not necessarily, but it is a promise that there is no arena for which Christ cannot use you. And so the only variable, really, if you think about it, is whether or not we want to be faithful. Faithful in the command, faithful in the commission. And so the point here is really just to say that there is a consistent principle, whether it comes to the 12, whether it comes to the 70, whether it comes to all disciples, any of us, and that is that Jesus will always supply the necessary spiritual resources, namely power and authority to bring about that which he has commanded of you. And again, the task may vary. Again, we have not been commanded to cast out demons. You will find no text, again, that commands you to heal the sick. Rather, we have been called to make disciples by preaching the gospel, calling everybody to repentance. But whatever the content of the command, the consistent promise, or the MO of Jesus is that he always gives the power and authority to accomplish such things. And so whether you are a mother who is in a season of feeling very tired, and very weary, and yet you still need to faithfully teach your children, or you're an exasperated father seeking to instruct your son, or you are a wife who is in subjection to a very difficult husband, or you are a man trying to lead a very difficult home or you're just speaking forth the gospel to a friend or a family member who seems to be so hardened in their heart, the confidence that you have anytime that you seek to be faithful to a command of Christ is that he will always provide you power. And it is a power, hear this, that is sufficient for you. In fact, Paul will say it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and speaking about faithfulness in the midst of his weakness, he repeats Jesus' words to him when he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected, where? In weakness. You want to see the greatest displays of Christ's power in you? You will always see it most prominently when you are in the state of your greatest weakness. That is when power shows up. That is when grace becomes most sufficient. I think the lie that we can buy into at times is that somehow we're deficient in what we need for faithfulness, especially when we're tired, especially when we're discouraged. But notice, nowhere in any of those passages are we called anywhere to seek out power in those times. Nowhere are we commanded to reach a higher plane of spirituality. Nowhere are we asked to pray harder or to dig deeper or to unleash a greater faith. Rather, when you strip it all away, the implication always is to simply trust in the sufficiency, hear this, of a promise already given to you. Already given to you. Which is to say that you operate from an infinite reserve of divine power always ready, always flowing, and because it is Christ's power. And so in very practical terms, we are called to make disciples. That is our task. That is the mandate. That is the commission entrusted to every single one of us. In fact, you don't need to pray about it. You don't need to keep wondering what Christ desires of you. You don't have to scratch your head at what his will is for your life. Rather, the clear instruction given to the church is to be busy making disciples. And in fact, as I said before, that is why he has left you here, John 17. But that entire commission is motivated by the very great promise that you have already everything you need. That is to say that in the outpouring of the Spirit, which you possess in fullness, if you're a Christian, He was poured out once for all in Acts chapter 2, so again, you can't get more of Him, you can't get less of Him, that you have Him in His fullness, and so at the outpouring of the Spirit, hear this, you have already been given sufficient spiritual power and authority to be faithful in everything. There are so many trying to figure out the newest technique trying to figure out how they can be used more by God, trying to figure out how they can get more of the Spirit or become more spiritual. But the simple truth of the Scriptures is that you have already been sufficiently supplied with everything that you need. And so really the only question is, will you be faithful? That is the question. That is always the question. And will you be faithful precisely because you're believing a particular promise? And so that is the first principle. He wants these men who would endure some very difficult things to understand that they have been sufficiently equipped. And of course, there are all kinds of implications to that. But if the first principle here is that Christ will give you everything you need in terms of spiritual resources, the second principle is that he will also provide for you physical resources. And we see that in verses three through five. And so notice again, Luke states, and he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And this is a very interesting command, especially verses three through four. But the basic point here is that Jesus, from the very beginning, is wanting to teach them something, and what he's wanting to teach them is true dependency. That is the point. And so notice he says in verse three that they are to take nothing for their journey. Now again, the question, is that prescriptive or descriptive? Well, if it's Prescriptive, then you should never give money to a missionary again, right? Or you would be complicit in their disobedience to this text. But here in the context, because this is descriptive, what Jesus is doing is he is trying to teach them a very important lesson as they are sent out on this first mission. And so again, this is an internship. This is more about them than it is about the ones to whom they'd be ministering. And so one of the very first lessons as Jesus is preparing them is he wants to teach them that very critical lesson of true dependency. And so notice in verse three, they were to bring literally nothing They were not to bring a staff, which would often be used to protect themselves. That was the purpose of the staff. They were not to bring a bag. They were not to bring bread or any food. They were not to bring money, nor were they even to bring two tunics, which is to say that they were not to have a sort of backup plan. Rather, they were to go out and live in a state of veritable dependency. By the way, some read this to mean that this is where Jesus is teaching passivity, and because they're not to bring a staff to protect themselves. Others will take this to mean that true, authentic Christian living is supposed to be a simple life that's free of material possessions beyond very basic needs. But flip with me, if you would, really quickly to chapter 22, chapter 22 of Luke, and this is important to see because it also helps to clarify some of what's going on in chapter 9. But in chapter 22, starting in verse... 35 of Luke, notice what he says to his disciples here. uh, Verse 35 of 22, uh, Luke records, and he, Jesus, said to them, when I sent you out without purse and bag and sandals, so that is a reference looking back to the passage here in chapter 9, but when I sent you out without purse and bag and sandal, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. So, Again, he was teaching them dependency. He was teaching them to trust in his provision for all things related to faithful ministry. Verse 36, and he said to them, but now, so things have changed, but now let him who has a purse take it along. Likewise, also a bag and let him who has no sword sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, namely that he was numbered among the transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is sufficient. So here Jesus is getting ready to die, verse 37, and so he understands that things are about to go really bad for his disciples. If it's about to go bad for the teacher, it's about to go bad for the teacher's followers. He understands this. And so he tells them to do certain things to make certain that they have provision. And so again, in light of chapter 22 here, chapter 9 is not teaching some strange or weird spiritual adventure where we're just to live simple lives and presume always upon the grace of God. Rather, this is still life, and so there's practical wisdom that these disciples now need to follow. And so notice he gives a very different command in chapter 22 than he does in chapter 9. And we're going to explore more why or why more fully once we get there, if we get there. But for those who like to use chapter 9 to argue for strange ascetic practices or to argue for even things like passivity, just understand that there are some very unique things going on right here in chapter 9. And that is that Jesus wants them to learn dependency. He wants to teach them something. That is the point. And so he has given them a unique instruction at a unique time for a very unique mission. And so this was to be an exercise of faith. This is a time in which Jesus wants him to learn some critical lessons as he prepares him now for several decades of ministry to come. In fact, notice he amps it up even more in verses 4 and 5. And so he says, starting in verse four, and whatever house you enter, stay there and take your leave from there. And so what are they to learn with this one? Well, that God's provision will come, but it will come specifically through the hospitality of God's people. In fact, in the gospel of Luke, there's a great theme that runs through, but to show hospitality to one of the disciples of Jesus is actually to show hospitality to the disciples' message. And we're going to see that develop as we go along. But if you receive them, it meant that in effect you were receiving their message and therefore receiving Christ. And so Jesus here says that as you go out proclaiming the kingdom, there will be some who believe your message and therefore become a follower of Christ. And so as you learn who those people are, those are the ones with whom you're to stay. In fact, they are the ones whom God will use to make physical provision for you. But even more than that, remember, they were given here incredible authority to perform some very amazing signs and wonders. And so what Jesus is doing is actually calling them to live very counter to the itinerant preachers and so-called healers of this day. In fact, in the first century, there were many traveling itinerant preachers and healers and exorcists. You see some of these with the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts. They were Jewish itinerant exorcists. How's that for a calling? But there were many fakes and frauds who would travel around claiming to heal, claiming to perform miracles. They were essentially what we would refer to as sellers of snake oil, and so they'd travel around and become very wealthy off the desperation of desperate people. And so think about this, but if you could authentically heal people and heal the kinds of people that Jesus healed, so not just someone with a sore back who just kind of vaguely thinks he healed them, but still aren't sure. Rather, you're actually making lame people walk and blind people see, and you're raising people from the dead. And so if you're you're able to demonstrate a true power and true authority, then you better believe that people are all of a sudden going to start opening up their wallets to you, right? And so to possess the same power as Jesus was to possess the ability also to become exceedingly rich, And so what Jesus is saying to these disciples is that they were forbidden, hear this, they were forbidden to enrich themselves at the expense of suffering people. And the temptation to abuse that power for the sake of personal gain, that was a very real issue for them. And so from the very beginning, Jesus wants to teach them that the ministry is never, and hear this, it is never to be used as a platform to gain wealth. Desperate people are willing to pay just about anything to receive healing. In fact, just think about how it'd be if you had a terminally ill son or daughter, like we saw with Jairus, and for which there was no remedy, what would be your price? How much would you be willing to pay in order for them to be made well? You'd probably give everything, right? And so what is the lesson? What is he trying to teach them? Well, that you are never to put a price on your ministry. That is the point. You are never to put a price on your ministry. The ministry is not to become a revenue stream for you. Now, both Jesus and Paul are very clear that pastors and overseers, in other words, elders, especially the ones who work hard at teaching and preaching, as they say, are are to make their living from their ministerial labors. But that is not the same thing as using the platform to enrich yourself, especially off the backs of desperate, suffering people. It is a sad thing when so-called celebrity pastors and preachers have a mandatory honorarium. That's an ironic phrase. A mandatory honorarium that they must be paid if you want them to speak at your church or your conference. In fact, these are what Paul calls peddlers of the word in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17. These are those who peddle the word for profit, as he says. Doesn't really matter if it's formal ministry and you teaching or preaching or counseling or if it involves any other gift that you could employ for the sake of the kingdom. But the moment that you put a price on that, and especially at the expense of a person in need, you are putting yourself into a very dangerous position. And mostly because it is a denial of Jesus' promise to provide for you. It is greed driven from unbelief. And of course, here's where I could just rant on the evils of the health and the wealth and the prosperity movement and everything involving TBN or the extreme forms of Pentecostalism who feed off of people's desperation. But perhaps it's sufficient to say, as one man said, that there is just a hotter hell reserved for that kind of person. These are frauds. These are charlatans. These are bottom feeders who use the hopelessness of hopeless people to make themselves fatter. But Jesus, who had no home and had no place to lay his head, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He refused to exploit his power for the sake of personal gain. And so now he looks at his disciples whom he would entrust with incredible power and authority and he sends them on their first mission and he orders them to do the same. You want to follow me? Then you model me. They're to receive their provision from those who have received their message. And what's also interesting is in verse 4, notice when he says, in whatever house you enter, stay there and take your leave from there. What what else is that teaching? Well, that they are also to be content. And you can imagine how easy it'd be for them to enter a village, and once they start healing people, and all of a sudden the wealthy and the influential start coming out, Right? They'd be ignored at first because they'd appear to just be these wandering beggars. But then all of a sudden, once the power starts to come out, now the wealthy want part of it. And so, of course, they're now going to invite you to a meal and a bigger house and better lodging. But Jesus says, enter the village and then stay with the one who first receives you and refuse to get caught up in the attention. And why? Well, because those people love your miracles, but the ones who received you love you because of your message. And this is not about miracles, but the message. In other words, he is saying that I do not give you this power that you might personally benefit. Rather, you are to go to the least of these and stay focused on mission. And so he is saying essentially learn contentment because this isn't about you, this is about the one of whom you preach. Again, a very important lesson that would serve them well in years to come. And then notice also verse 5. He also tells them how to handle those who would reject them. It says in verse 5, And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from the city, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony or a witness against them. Now, The idea here of shaking the dust off their feet was a common Jewish practice for when they would Sort of walk through Gentile country. They didn't want to bring the filth from Gentile country back into Israel. And so they would essentially shake the dust off their feet so as not to trapse it back into the Holy Land and defile the nation. And so for Jews, this was also a sign of judgment. This was a public display to identify those who were not of God's people. And so he says, Shake the dust off your feet. And move on. In other words, treat them essentially as unbelieving Gentiles. Remember, they're here in Galilee, and so they're still ministering among the Jews. And there is a important practical lesson in that for us, by the way. There is a time in which you will need to decide to move on from someone. In fact, I get that question a lot. A lot of people wonder when they should move on to seek to minister to somebody else, when they should start bringing the gospel to somebody else? How much do you keep talking? How much do you keep speaking the gospel? Especially, how much do you keep trying to speak truth into the life of one who claims to be a Christian? Well, the answer is not necessarily an easy answer, especially when it comes to friends and family, particularly because it can be so emotional. But I do tell you that it is a simple answer, Jesus says that if they do not receive you, that is, they do not receive your message or what you teach, move on. There may be times in which you may need multiple exposures to a person or multiple attempts to bring them the gospel, but once a person rejects the gospel after it's been clearly given to them and it's been clearly understood, you are never going to just sort of wear them down to where they'll just finally decide to receive it. In fact, that actually has the opposite effect. That has a hardening effect. And so if a person is not rejecting the gospel from a place of ignorance, but rejecting it from a place of knowledge, that is a time to move on. In fact, that is the very principle here that Jesus teaches. That going back to the beginning of chapter 8, no amount of throwing seed in the same spot of concrete is ever going to make it take root, right? In fact, Paul says it another way, a much more brutal way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And this is his final word, essentially, before he signs off the letter. But he says, if anyone, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Literally, it's the Greek word anathema. He is to be cut off, cursed. And by the way, that is in the imperative mood, which means that it is a command. You are to let them be. You are not to chase them. You are not to try and marshal a better argument. You are not to try and reason or convince them. Rather, you are to let them remain in the state of judgment. And, of course, that implies, again, that this is a willful rejection. This is not a person who is rejecting from ignorance or a person who hasn't yet accepted but is still asking questions. You can always tell when a person is still soft to the things of the Word. But this is speaking of one who is rejecting from knowledge, like Jesus put it in very practical terms, very illustrative terms, when he says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6, this is the Sermon on the Mount, and remember, this is his great teaching, where he is instructing on what all true faithful discipleship is to look like, and so he says in verse 6 of chapter 7, do not give what is holy to dogs. Command. And Do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. That is a fascinating verse. In fact, that cuts against so much of the sappy, sort of sentimental notions of grace that we see so prevalent in the church today. There is a time in which you have to ask the question as to what kind of person you're dealing with. Is this a person rejecting from ignorance or is this a person rejecting from knowledge? In fact, that would have been a very shocking statement to a Jew. Dogs in our day are household pets, your precious bootsy. But in this day, they were mangy, sort of disease filled creatures who were wild and filthy. You don't go anywhere near dogs, dogs belong in the wilderness. And so think about this, but if you were to offer something holy as a Jew, then to whom are you to offer something to? You are to offer something holy to God alone, right? In fact, that phrase there of offering something holy, that is a very Jewish phrase, and it's speaking of the fact that they'd go into the temple and they'd offer up a holy sacrifice upon the altar to God alone. And so the imagery here is is imagine offering meet-up onto the altar to be burnt to God, but then immediately grabbing that meat, walking outside, throwing it on the ground to a pack of dogs. That would be a total desecration. You do not offer what is holy to dogs. And so in a similar way, what... Jesus is saying, then, is that you do not desecrate the message of the gospel by keep on trying to offer it to those who will only keep rejecting it. That is a desecration. The gospel is holy. The gospel is something precious. In fact, he drives it home even further when he talks about the pearls and the pigs. Pigs, remember, were considered unclean in this day. They were not kosher. Jews do not deal with pigs. And so to keep trying to speak the gospel into the life of one who has heard but only rejects, that is like taking a very precious pearl and putting it in the mud to be trampled on by that which is unclean. That is not the place for pearls. Pearls are to be displayed. They're to be treasured. They're to be adorned by those who understand their value, not trampled underfoot by pigs. And then beyond that, he... Not only says that, so he says, do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them underfoot, but he also says, and then turn and tear you to pieces. In other words, you keep trying to give pearls to pigs, that's one thing. They'll reject it, they'll trample it, they'll not recognize it to be what it is. But if you stay there long enough and you keep doing that long enough, then at some point, and this is key, at some point they will turn on you. Not only will they trample your message because they view it as worthless and they do not want it, but at some point they will seek to destroy you as well. Not only will they be hostile to the message, but they'll be at some point hostile to the messenger. And so this is wisdom. That is what this is. This is a very important principle and one, by the way, that will become, I think, extremely exceedingly important given the trajectory of our culture. There will be a time in which we will need to start heeding passages that right now we just seem to ignore. Passages like be shrewd as serpents, yet innocent as doves. Christians on social media are not helping that one. Be on watch, be on guard, be sober, be alert, gird up your loins. Do not throw pearls before swine. Remember, Jesus here, he's getting his disciples ready to suffer. He was sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And so, there is a time coming, I think, in which even passages such as Matthew chapter 10 will become very important to us. Passages in which sons and daughters, mothers and brothers will literally hand you over because of your allegiance to Christ. And so Jesus here understands that time is exceedingly short. And he gives to each and every one of us a certain amount of time. And so he says, do not spend your days casting seed onto the same patch of concrete. Rather, if they don't receive you because they don't receive your message, shake off the dust, move on, and bring the gospel to somebody else. And I would add, before you leave, do not forget to warn that person of judgment, which is what is symbolized in the shaking off the dust. It is a testimony, it is a witness against them. Which is to say that your final judgment will be brought up on the day of judgment against them as evidence. In fact, that is exactly what Paul did In Acts chapter 18 and verse 6, when it says, and when they resisted and blasphemed, Paul shook his garments. That's the idea. Shook his garments and said, your blood now be on your own heads. And he is there talking to the Jews. And so he said, I am clean. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. And so that is exactly what he did. Shook his garments. He gave his final word of judgment because of the rejection Said, Your blood be on your own head. I have been faithful to preach, been faithful to bring the gospel, and so you now bear your own guilt. And so even Paul understood that there was a time to move on. He moved on from the Jews to the Gentiles. They were so hardened to his gospel. And so this is what the Lord teaches these disciples at the very beginning. You don't change the message. You don't alter the message. You don't soften the message in order to keep the people happy or to try and stay winsome. Rather, you preach the full truth of the gospel, hear this, until a person either accepts you or rejects you. And there is a temptation there specifically for many pastors. They do want to keep their people happy. They want to keep their job in many cases. I understand that. And so the temptation to soften the message in order to keep receiving a paycheck every week is a very real temptation that many pastors face in our day. But Jesus here is essentially saying, do not minister in the light of needing to feed yourself or the need to keep having a place to sleep. Rather, you are to discharge your duties in a faithful way. And why? Well, because ultimately, I will keep providing for you. And so you are free. Indeed, you are ordered to shake the dust off your feet and move on. There is a time in which you will need to make that decision when it comes to your family and your friends or anyone to whom you're speaking to the gospel to, frankly. It can be a very difficult thing, but it is also a very righteous thing. You don't need to cut them off in the sense of cutting them out of your life necessarily, but there is a point in which you will need to cease from constantly trying to speak truth into their life. You have very limited time, limited energy, limited opportunities, and so every single one of us needs to assess the ones to whom we're being missional and then ask the question, are they still rejecting from ignorance, in which case maybe you need to make things more clear, or are they rejecting from knowledge? And if they reject from knowledge, then shake off the dust, give them that final warning, and then bring the gospel to somebody else. For you to keep casting the seed And so very simple passage in many ways. These are just two principles of our Lord for faithful ministry. He's going to give you what you need in terms of spiritual resources, but he'll also give you what you need in terms of physical resources. And so let me just end here by drawing your attention very quickly to verses 7 through 9. I almost made this a separate sermon. I still might. We'll see. But notice... Luke says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. Now this is a somewhat strange set of verses because it seems like they almost just come out of nowhere. In fact, the very next passage is Jesus feeding the 5,000, which again is a passage about discipleship. Verses 1 through 6 here are about discipleship. And so you have this what seems to be random statement about Herod. Haven't seen him in a while. But the point is that these disciples, as they go about doing their ministry, which again, we see here in verse 6, where notice Luke says, and they began going out among the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. That kind of effort was apparently beginning to create some serious attention. And so if you can remember back to the passages involving John the Baptist, remember Herod was a tetrarch, which means that he was one of four sort of underrulers of the greater region. He was a king, not really, he was more of a petty king. And so he was the ruler over the region in particular of Galilee. And so as the disciples begin to do their ministry, they're beginning to create some serious disruption. And in fact, so much so that word gets back to Herod. And so what's interesting about what is the way it's phrased here is that notice Herod seems to be intrigued not with the disciples, but with a particular person. Like notice in verse 7, it says that he was perplexed. And why? Well, because it was said by some that John had arisen from the dead, by others that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. In other words, as the disciples are doing their work, it's evidently drawing a lot of attention to a singular figure, singular person. And so the question is, so who is that? Who is this person? Well, obviously, it is the one in whose name they're accomplishing such things, you see? And so Herod here asks in verse 9, so who is this man? Which, as you know, has been the almost ominous question that Luke has been seeking to answer for about three chapters at this point. And so Herod here is really just functioning as a narrative figure to sort of force the question again in the mind of the reader but the point that I want you to observe is that faithful ministry is not only dependent upon the power of Christ for both spiritual and physical resources, but faithful ministry also never draws attention to the ministry itself. Rather, faithful preaching and faithful ministry always exalts Christ. He is the point. He is the goal. And so if your proclamation or your discipleship or your efforts to bring the gospel is not in some way utterly focused on the person of Jesus, then it is not true ministry. And so I have said it on many occasions, and I know that you understand this well, but the gospel is not about meeting felt needs, is it? It's not about fixing the various struggles in your life. It is not about filling the void in your heart. It is certainly not about giving you a certain therapeutic coping mechanism. Rather, all true preaching and ministry makes very little of men because it's busy making so much of Jesus Christ. In fact, that is exactly why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2 says, for I determined to know nothing among you. How much is Nothing. for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When you have pastors and teachers and church leaders establishing themselves as gurus and self-help experts who have got all the answers to your sort of temporary problems and are claiming to be experts in psychology and apparently now involving everything sociology and bringing all kinds of secular techniques and therapeutics to bear on your life. I am not certain they're pastoring you. And because, beloved, the gospel, and hear this, the gospel is not ultimately about you. Now, there are some wonderful benefits to believing the gospel, but ultimately, it is not about you. Rather, the gospel is about magnifying the person of Christ among the nations. It's about Him. And so notice, these disciples go out and do some wonderful things for many, many people, but all that Herod can come away with from that is, so who is this man? That is the compelling question. End of verse 9, so he kept on trying to see him. Anyone ever said that about your life? that you live and operate in such a Christ-focused way that when they look at you and they look at your life and they look at your goals and all your decision-making and how you handle your money and all your pursuits and what you talk about most, it literally forces them to ask the question of why? Makes them wonder as to the driving motive of your life. What defines you? It is an amazing thought to think that these disciples could perform such miraculous signs and wonders, and yet all that Herod could think about was getting to Jesus. And of course, not only because they were performing miracles, but also because they were preaching a certain message, right? And I think I am going to have to develop this next time because... What's also important to understand here is that this was not Herod seeking out Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this was Herod seeking out Jesus because these disciples manifested some tremendous power and yet what were they preaching? Well, they were preaching of a certain kingdom, verse two. And so whatever this kingdom is, it must be a kingdom of some tremendous power. And so think about it from Herod's perspective, but what is implied with a kingdom? That there must also be a king. And as the established king of the region, that made him very nervous. What is his power and who is this man? And you should hear implied in there, Who threatens me? And by the way, that is the question thematically that Luke is trying to get you to answer about your life. We'll see Herod later on, but every sinner desires to be the king of their own domain, right? But Jesus will not share his glory with another. Either you will rebel against him as you seek your own sinful will, or you will bow to him as the sovereign king of the universe, but there is zero neutrality For all kings and all kingdoms demand allegiance. And so either you are for him, or in your own sinful rebellion, you are against him. And that is the hard truth that Herod would come to find out, and ultimately what will play a part in getting Jesus killed as he would conspire with Pontius Pilate. But that is the question, that is the ultimate question. Who is this man and who do you understand him to be? And I tell you the truth that all of eternity hangs on a right answer. Who is this man and who do you understand him to be? Let's pray. And Father, thank you again for the opportunity to spend time in your Word. I pray that by the power of the Spirit that you would help us to reflect on some of these things. It is such a simple and yet straightforward passage that I think gives such a helpful reminder, a reminder that you will always provide anything that we may need along the pathway of obedience. And so I ask that in these days as we seek to be a church that lives on mission for you, that this may be a source of great encouragement, especially in a time such as this. I do know the burden for many in this room that it is to bear an eternal fruit that lasts and bring glory to your name. And so I do ask that you would cause this to become increasingly fruitful and to remain fruitful. Cause our efforts to multiply and accomplish that which you desire for us to accomplish in this city is. As we're faithful in our various spheres of influence and may you show yourself among us to be that one who truly is able to do and provide for us far more abundantly than all that we could ever ask or think and according to that power that works within us as Paul says that is my prayer that is my hope and desire for this church And so as we now turn to song and remember the Lord's death and the Lord's Supper, I do pray that you would be honored. Pray that the people's souls here might be refreshed and comforted and encouraged. And most of all, that Jesus' name would be exalted. And so we do ask these things and now pray, amen.